So this morning, we are beginning a new series that will continue through the fall that we're calling Protestant Transformation, a little, a little bit of a, a you know, play on the predictable words, uh, Protestant Reformation. Why are we, why are we doing that? Um, well, this fall marks the 500th anniversary of a, uh, when an anonymous monk in a small village in Germany uh, decided that he wanted to do something about the way that his church was uh, communicating, what does it mean to repent, what does it mean to be forgiven, um, and he was really looking to reform uh, the church that he loved. God ended up using uh, Martin Luther and those 95 theses to fan into flame um, a uh, an incredible movement of the Holy Spirit all throughout Europe, uh, and it has affected not just the church history, but the history of uh, places like Germany and England and Scotland and the Netherlands and, and so on, and really the, the entire world. Um, so we're going to reflect upon church history some this fall, uh, and I know that that may make some of you scratch your heads a little bit. Uh, we're not just doing this for historical purposes. Uh, we're doing this because we believe uh, that as a Reformed church, that you'll, you'll hear about more uh, over the course of the fall, that this is significant for today. Um, even though we are, are busy, uh, we've got projects, you've got projects at work, you've got projects at home, your kids have projects at home, projects at school, your grandkids have projects, and who, you know, you're not thinking about church history, uh, European church history. Uh, and that's not really what's going to be front and center. Uh, what is going to be front and center is how uh, that movement helped remove the varnish, remove uh, the, the things that obscured the clearest view of the gospel that we could possibly have. Um, and, uh, and so we're going to be looking at some of those fundamentals, theological fundamentals, uh, throughout the fall. Uh, one of the things that happened... Uh, with Martin Luther was uh, he uh, became absorbed in uh, Romans, the book of Romans. So I want you to turn now to Romans chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be looking at lots of different passages over the course of the fall, um, but we're going to start here in Romans 1 because this was a, uh, a watershed moment for uh, Martin Luther as he read the words of Romans 1 and as we're going to hear them now. Please stand in honor of God's word, I'm going to read verses 16 to 23. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray for your blessing over your word this morning, um, this word that has been uh, so instrumental in the lives of your saints, not only for the past 500 years, but really for the past 2,000 years. Uh, Lord, would you continue uh, through the agency of your spirit uh, to change us, uh, to reform us, to, to transform us so that more and more people could see uh, the glory of Jesus in us. We pray in his name. Amen. Um, please be seated. <clears throat> uh, you know, as I alluded uh, to, you might be wondering what real difference does the, the Reformation make uh, in our lives today? And, uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll uncover the answer to that uh, you know, throughout the fall. But, um, but this passage in Romans is important. Uh, and, and let me uh, tell you Martin Luther's opinion about uh, the, the entire book of Romans. He says this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. Um, I'm not sure if what, what you think about uh, Luther's estimation of the book of Romans. You may agree or you may be curious about that, want to learn more. Uh, what I hope is that as we look at these verses in Romans 1, we're going to learn more about the power of God. Uh, we're going to learn more about the righteousness of God, even the wrath of God, uh, because those things are vital to understanding the glory of God and the gospel of God. Those, those headings, those things that we see here in, uh, in these few verses uh, give us, a, I think, a good introduction to why the Reformation is so important. Why are we going to spend time this fall uh, reflecting on this? So let's begin with the power of God, uh, as Paul describes it in verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, you know, God's old covenant people who received his word primarily and, uh, and principally, and then for everybody else, uh, all of the you know, Gentiles besides the, the Jewish race. Um, when we think of the power of God, uh, it's something that everybody uh, attests to, uh, whether or not they are actively or unconsciously suppressing uh, the knowledge of God, as our passage um, you know, explains. Everybody has clearly perceived some of the attributes of God, some of the character and the quality of who God is. Uh, and part of that means his power, his divine nature. And that's why everywhere you go, in all times, in all places, in all ages, uh, people relate to God in some way, and they call upon God uh, to act on their behalf, to, to powerfully act. That's why we pray. That's why, you know, people make sacrifices. That's why they want to, to get God on their side, as it were, uh, so, that, so that that power will be utilized uh, for blessing or for whatever advantage that that individual wants. Um, people get that. People understand God is powerful. Just like we get um, that storms are powerful, uh, thunderstorms are powerful. We hear 
the thunder. We see the lightning and we go, wow, that's impressive. And, you know, there's, there's power there. And then you see real power, real storms, hurricane-sized storms, Harvey-sized storms that just kind of blow every expectation away, um, that set records uh, for rainfall, that, that slam into the Texas coastline at 132 miles per hour, and in some places dump almost 52 inches of rain. 52 inches of rain. That's almost five feet of rain. If you had to measure that in snowfall, it would be hundreds of feet. 52 inches of rain, um, 19 trillion gallons of water is what meteorologists estimate. 19 trillion gallons of water fell uh, in that, you know, metro Houston, Texas uh, coastline area. Uh, that does not include the five and a half trillion gallons that they estimate fell in Louisiana. So let's just look at Texas. Let's look at, at Houston. This is the size of Harvey, the amount of rainfall that fell. Uh, there are Houston, as I discovered, you probably did too. I didn't know. Um, it happens to be the fourth largest city in the U.S., with 2.3 million people in the city of Houston and, and the, the outlying area as well. So I had to pull out my calculator. But when you divide 19 trillion gallons of rain falling on uh, 2.3 million people, what that means is that for every person each of those 2.3 million people, for every person that was there, eight, over 8,200 gallons of rain fell for each person. 8,200 gallons of rain. Your bathtub holds about 50 gallons of rain, of water. <laughs> Hopefully it's not rain. Your bathtub holds about 50 gallons of water. Now, what is, how much is 8,200 gallons of water? And that's for every one of the, those 2.3 million people in Houston. That's just a, 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 the power of that storm is beyond our, our grasp and our understanding. I, I mean, I, I know um, people lost their lives and people lost their property. And so we don't really know how we should feel about that power. But let's, let's pretend that the entire Texas coast was uninhabited and all we had was just this storm and all of its rain and all of its power to admire and to marvel at and that nobody got hurt, you know, um, that would be something else. But the reality is that people, people did get hurt. People did lose their lives and, and, and people did lose property. And uh, in that storm, as, as, as much as it is a reminder of the power of, of you know, just nature, if that's how you want to describe it, or, you know, if God's involved with that. Uh, it also is a reminder of the powerlessness of, of human beings, that despite all of our ingenuity, despite all of our infrastructure, despite all of our engineering, it cannot keep that water out. You cannot keep 19 trillion gallons of water from flooding, you know, all the homes, all the businesses, all the interstates and infrastructure of, uh, of Houston and all the other parts along the Texas coastline powerless. And 
when you take that example and you start thinking about the power of God on display in the gospel, we start to realize that maybe what we need is to expand our view, our understanding of how powerful exactly is God. How powerless truly are we when it comes to earning our way, saving our souls, all of these things that we think, uh, that we take for granted, hey, I'll just be a good person, I'll make, I'll make it in the by and by. Um, other things that we're going to see here in just a minute uh, will make it evident that no, we can't do that. that. That it's a good thing, it's good news that this powerful God has exercised his power and taken the initiative to come and to save us, that the gospel is the good news of the power of God to save us. That the God who controls storms like Harvey, and you know, I know people were praying, God, save us, save our property. And those prayers weren't answered in the ways that they wanted to be answered. And this isn't a sermon about how come, you know, bad things happen when we pray, you know, for God to protect us. Just Put that aside for a second and marvel with me at the God of the storm. The one who has complete power, complete sovereign power over everything that happens on this planet. And that power is being utilized and is being directed toward your salvation and mine. And that the greatest power that can be on display isn't the power of floodwaters to destroy but the greatest power that there is in all creation is actually the power to create. Not to destroy, but to bring life. It's the power of, of God in raising the dead, as Paul tells the Colossians in chapter 2, that you were also raised with Jesus through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So the gospel is the good news of the power of God who even raises the dead, nobody has that power, who even raises the dead and who has directed and initiated and pursued you with that kind of power, power that makes Harvey look, you know, like a tempest in a teapot. Paul goes on to describe the righteousness of God in verse 17, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed uh, from faith for faith, meaning, you know, it begins with faith, it ends with faith, it continues through faith, as it is written, the righteous shall, shall live by faith. Um, the Apostle Paul is quoting one of the minor prophets as if, you know, to demonstrate that this isn't a new thing um, that we have always related to God, had our relationship with God based on faith uh, rather than our moral achievements. Um, so the righteousness of God is good news as well because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's good news to us that God is righteous. Um, and the uh, term that sometimes the, in, in English, um, both the word righteousness and justice are fair, accurate, good translations of the word that Paul's using here uh, when he describes God as righteous or just that the righteousness or the justice of God is revealed. And that's good that God is righteous and just. It's good that he is morally pure and holy and excellent. There's no 
There's no sin in God. There's no fault in God. There's no, uh, nothing that we would need to be suspicious of. There's nothing that we would need to be concerned about. You know, is he going to pull through? Is he going to be consistent? Is, can, can I depend on him? We can count on him. We can count on him because he is holy and he's good. And the way that we relate to him is, is through faith. Uh, Jesus describes uh, our, our heavenly father as perfect. He says, you therefore must be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus gives us uh, a living example of what it looks like uh, to embody that kind of moral perfection, that kind of righteousness and justice. And Jesus would say things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And so it's good news that, that we, we relate to a God who is not sinful, he's not imperfect, there are no limits on him, and yet, at the same time, uh, it raises a disturbing question. Do we have to be as righteous and just and, and holy as God is? And if we're going to have a relationship with, with someone who is so morally pure and holy and righteous and just, um, how am I going to be compatible with that, given the fact that, well, if I'm honest, I am not morally pure. I am not righteous and just. Even on my best days, my best efforts are still, you know, corrupted. What if I'm not that kind of person? Um, and this is part of the problem that, that uh, the righteousness of God presents to us, even though it's good news on the one hand that, you know, God is of that kind of character and quality that there's no sin in him. Uh, it creates a, a problem for us. How are we compatible with that? Um, Tim Keller puts it this way, man is traumatized by and even hostile to the holy presence of God. And yet we were, we were built for fellowship with God. We cannot live with God and we cannot live without God. This is the essence of man's condition. All of our problems flow from it and none can be understood apart from it. But that's not all that there is to say about the righteousness of God in the gospel because it's not just a righteousness of God that describes God, um, what Paul is describing, what Luther discovered, is that this is an imputed righteousness from God that is being revealed in the gospel. That it's, the, it's a quality of God and it's a gift from him to all who believe, to all who have faith in him. So um, the story goes that Martin Luther, as a monk, was... Um, scrupulous, was just intense, and um, he was overwhelming uh, his peers and his superiors with just his, um, uh, the, the hyper nature of his conscience, trying to be good, trying to be a good monk, trying to be morally pure. He couldn't do it, and he was despairing. And, uh, and he, was, he was preparing a series on the Psalms, and he was looking in Romans, and he stumbled across Romans chapter 1. He stumbled across his verse 16 and 17, and he says this. I, I saw, I finally saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. And then I grasp that the justice or the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. And thereupon I felt myself to be reborn 
and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The, the whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice or the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. A gate to heaven. Because now this, this irreconcilable tension between God's righteousness and our unrighteousness was finally put to rest when what Paul realized, when, when, when what Luther realized that Paul was saying is that God gives us the righteousness that we require. And it's a, it's a theological word called imputing, to put on, to credit to somebody's account. Um, something that they don't have of themselves. And this is, what, this is what God does. And Paul talks about it in Philippians 3. Listen to what he says. In order uh, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own or a self-righteousness, right? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from the rules, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. The righteousness of God is given to us freely through believing in Jesus. That what Jesus did on the cross was he came and lived this beautiful, perfect life that we're supposed to be living, this morally pure, perfectly righteous, perfectly just life. We aspire to that. We fall short of that. Jesus accomplished it. And, and on the cross, he took our sin on himself. Our sin was assigned to him. And he became the sin offering in our place. But that's not all that happened. If that's all that had happened, think about all the Harvey, uh, Hurricane Harvey victims you know, who had been flooded out of their homes, they've lost everything, um, and the floodwaters recede, and now they can go back to their homes. Well, great, I can go back to my home. The floodwaters aren't there anymore. But I've got nothing. You know, so the water's gone, but now what good is that? I'm still, I'm still helpless, I'm still impoverished, I still have nothing. And so it's one thing to have sort of the floodwaters of judgment removed. It's another thing to not only have my sin put on Jesus, who takes my sin away and takes that judgment on my place, but he gives me his right record, imputes that to me, puts it on me, puts it on you and all who have faith in Jesus. So that's when, you know, the insurance agent shows up with the check. Here's the check. So now you're not, you know, homeless and poor and you have nothing to your name. Now you have riches. Now you have means. Um, and, and that's a picture of what it means for Jesus to not only take our sin away, but to give us his righteousness. And that's how we become finally compatible with a holy God. He counts us to be holy. Not because we've earned our stripes, you know, been really, really good, hardworking Christian people, but because Jesus gave us a gift that we couldn't possibly earn on ourselves. So um, Paul puts it like this in the, in the next chapter in Romans, that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe, so that God might be just and righteous and the justifier, the, the righteous-making God of, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Um, 
you know, Michael Horton puts it this way, Luther, through reading Romans chapter 1, finally understood that the righteousness which God not only is, but gives. God not only judges us by his righteousness, but with his righteousness imputed to our account. This is so fundamental uh, to what was rediscovered in the Reformation that, uh, th- that we're going back to this and remembering, all right, this is how this, this came to light again. It was always been in the scriptures. Uh, God's people kind of lost sight of it. Uh, the church got kind of messed up and lost its way, and, um, and God sent his spirit to renew and revive his church. And ever since then, we continue to need to look and not lose sight of this, this, the beauty of the righteousness that God gives to his people. It's part of the good news of the gospel. Looking at verse 18, continue with me. Um, Paul talks about the wrath of God. How part of what the gospel reveals is the wrath of God. Um, it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. So, so they're without excuse, uh, Paul goes on to say in verse 20. So, you know, one way to think about this is that there really is such a thing as righteous indignation. There really is such a thing as as holy anger. We don't like to talk about it. We don't really know what to think about the wrath of God. But we should not ignore it. It's in Scripture. It needs to be recovered. We need to live in light of it. Um, We're not sure what to do with it, as I said. But listen, I don't think it's as, as... It's not as hard to understand as you think. And in your heart of hearts, you you totally resonate with it. In your heart of hearts, I would go so far as to say, you actually think it's good news. And I do too. The world does. Even though they scoff at it and they mock it. Inwardly, in our quiet, desperate moments, we understand that the wrath of God is good news because I want you to listen carefully. I'm going to say this in the most purposeful, intentional, redeemed way possible. It's good news that God gives a damn about sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? To curse sin, for there to be such a thing as damnation, uh, for there to be such a thing as hell, is good news because it satisfies that plea for justice that's in every single soul. It was in Heather Heyer's soul, the, the woman who was mowed down in the protests in Charlottesville two weeks ago. All, all throughout sort of that, you know, the, the, the right movement now, uh, or, I'm sorry, the left movement now, all throughout the left movement, all the, all the signs, all the posts are, if, if, um, you know, if you're not uh, infuriated, you're not paying attention, right? Something like that. Where did that statement come from? That was Heather Heyer's last Facebook post. If you're not infuriated, you're not paying attention, right? Because there are things in our society and our culture that are infuriating, that are wrong. And our souls cry out for God to make that right. And that's a part of what the justice of God is. That's a part of what the wrath of God is. It's a holy anger. It's it's realizing, no, it is right to be outraged, not infuriated, outraged. If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And there's a holy outrage 
for what is wrong with this world that, that God alone sets the standard for. So when the Bible talks about a day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, it's not God flying off the handle and losing his temper. It's God bringing to bear perfect righteousness, patient justice to bear on what's wrong in this world and, frankly, uh, what's wrong with each of us, which is why we need the gospel which is why we need a vision of the glory of God. That's how you know, Paul wraps up um, talking about the, the problem with humanity is, is exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling created things rather than the, creation, the, the creator. Uh, that we've turned our backs on the creator and we're consumed with what's around us and living for the now and putting ourselves in the center of reality. Uh, Paul goes on to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, um, a statement that I read on every single gospel track that there is. You know, have you ever go in a restaurant or see the little display stand outside of a store or something, and there's, there's a little summary of the gospel, and every one that I've ever read, and I collect them because I find them interesting, how do people summarize the good news? And every single one of them has Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But very, 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 very few people have any idea what it means to fall short of the glory of God. Do you know what it means? Our catechism says that the, the chief end, the chief purpose, the reason for our existence is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And it's, it's not hard. It's very simple. It means putting God in the center of our existence that our lives revolve around him instead of asking him and everyone else in creation to revolve around me. Put him at the center. Live for him, think for him, love for him, act for him. He gets the credit, he gets the glory, and that's what it means to glorify God, which is good news for us to live that life. Because guess what happens when you and I have God at the center of everything that we do? Everything that we say, everything that we think about, everything that we feel, if God is at the center of that, and to the degree that he's, you know, we're able to move him more and more into the center of our thoughts and, think, and, uh, and, and attitudes and actions, is that we finally become human the way that God intended us to be. And, and we actually become more loving. Do you, want to be, do you want to become a more loving person? Put God at the center of your heart. Let him be the reason why you're doing and saying and thinking and feeling what you're, what you're doing and how you're living. Do you want to become um, a more peaceful person? Well, that's, that's going to happen when God is at the center of everything that, about you, from when you wake up to when you go to bed. Do you want to become a more joyful person? I promise you that will happen when God is at the center of, of your entirety. And so when God is being glorified in us, all kinds of good things flow out of that. And that's why it's really good news that God says, I'm the center of all things, because that's how reality works. You know, we can, we can deny that or we can dismiss that, but uh, that's to our harm, not his. And, uh, but the more and more we agree with that and get on board with that, we start to see the beauty of the gospel where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this. This is reality. I'm not ashamed of this good news. You know, it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes because it's the gospel of God. 
earlier on, you know, verse, verse 2 of chapter 1, Paul describes it as the gospel of God, the good news of God, the good news that God is God, that God is good. The good news flows from God, that everything that God made is good. It was so good, it was very good. That's why we put, you know, that verse from Genesis on the wall here. That's the way things began. That's what flows from God. Anything that's corrupted in this world is not from him. It's from the corrupter, and, you know, that's another sermon. There's mystery there. But let's just assume for a second that the Bible's true, that what's wrong with this world isn't what God made, but how we've corrupted it. We've taken what is good, and through what became bad in us, we've made things ungood. But that the good God wasn't content for us to just suffer the bad that was due to us. He brought Jesus uh, to bring goodness back into the world and to bear our badness. And that through faith in him, we are seen as good again. And we can grow into that goodness. We can be reformed. We can be transformed. And that there is a day coming when God is going to make everything ungood come untrue. That is the good news of a good God who's committed to pursuing goodness. That's, that was so central to the Reformation. That's what's got to be central to what we believe and how we live and how we function as a church. So, you know, this isn't just European, um, you know, church history at stake. This is, the, this is our understanding of the Bible that's at stake. This is our understanding of, of, of love and joy and peace that's at stake. It's our understanding of eternity that's at stake. And what difference does this make for us as a church? Well, I want to wrap up with a couple of points to, to put before you. Tabernacle is a Reformed church, um, which is a, a way of describing our theological orientation, that that our foundation was sort of set through a lot of the things that were expressed 500 years ago in the Protestant Reformation. So we've got things, documents like the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and the shorter catechisms, which were written in the 1640s. My goodness, you know, um, that's a long time ago. But those, those truths are still true today because we think they are a very accurate summary of what's in here, and this word never changes doesn't mean that our documents are perfect, but we think that they are pretty much the best thing around to help us come to grips with what exactly does the Bible teach. So much so that when um, an officer is ordained in the PCA in our churches, uh, an elder or a deacon or a pastor has to take this vow. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? You know, that's a way um, for us to be held accountable for what we teach, for what I teach, for what your elders and deacons are, are believing and sharing. Um, so that if I were to show up next Sunday morning and say, hey, guess what, everyone? Uh, it was a really pretty powerful night, you know, praying. God spoke to me, showed me that there's a fourth member of the Trinity. I want to tell you all about him. According to the fact that we are a confessional church, we are a reformed church, and we subscribe to these things, and we've taken oaths you know, to, to affirm these things, you have a right to know what your leaders believe. You have the right and the ability and the duty to hold us accountable for those things. So that if I show up 
you know, preaching some bit of nonsense, you can and should throw me out of my butt. That's how it works. And that's some of the freedom that you uh, enjoy because of that, because we're a Reformed church. Um, and don't get, don't get, um, uh, don't become cautious or concerned about what does it mean that we're a Reformed church? Because um, maybe you get suspicious about things like uh, a confession of faith or a catechism being a summary of what the Bible teaches. Can't we just go straight to this? Yes, that's the whole point. Going, going back to this, but anytime you read this, any person who's trying to make sense of the Bible comes up with a grid of their own. We all try to filter and, and understand and, uh, and you know, help. Uh, how does Romans relate to Matthew? How does Matthew relate to Exodus? And you know, all the different pieces and, of the puzzle. A, a system of theology helps us understand this. Um, and a system of theology helps us to recognize what's false, uh, what's, what's missing, things like that. There's an image on the front of your bulletin that I, I think will explain what I'm talking about. This is a mural uh, from a little church, a little uh, um, chapel in a very small town in Spain. And uh, let me get the lights dimmed here if I can, because um, I want to show you. That this is the original mural, and it's uh, only about three feet tall. And, and it's a, just a, a picture of Christ and his passion. Uh, and the artist, um, Elias Martinez, painted this around 1930. And over time, as murals especially tend to do, the plaster chips away and the elements, the weather, um, created all of those you know, parts of the mural that became missing, as you see in the center panel. Uh, and so the work of an art restorer um, is to go in and maintain you know, paintings or murals and frescoes, things like this, uh, so that when paint gets chipped away, they'll go and restore that. Well, this is a unique fresco because a, a woman about five years ago, um, who was very devout, part of the, the congregation, and, and actually has a history as a painter, uh, she had the priest's permission uh, to try to do a little bit of restoration on this fresco. And what ended up happening was what's on the right. Uh, a disaster, you know, from all accounts, from every opinion. Uh, this painting, uh, the, the official name is Eke Homo. Uh, here is the man, you know, when Pilate presents the, um, uh, the crown of thorns bearing Christ before his crucifixion. And uh, the parody was that now the name of the fresco is Eke Mono. Um, mono is the Spanish word for monkey. You know, because it looks like a monkey now. Uh, so what uh, art restoration, uh, what, what an art restorer will do is not only replace what's missing, you know, and touch that up so that it looks like it was supposed to, but can take what's wrong and what gets ruined uh, either through botched restorations or just through smoke and dirt and age uh, can, can peel off of all of those layers, all of that extra stuff, and get back to the original. That's what a good theology will do. That's what the reformers were doing. Martin Luther went back to the original Greek. He went back to the original Hebrew, and he translated a German Bible so that the people could read it, and they could, they could fill in what was missing theologically. And so they could remove and peel back the layers of man-made tradition and corruption in the church. And that's why 
it was a good thing uh, that the reformers were teaching and preaching uh, what they were looking at. Um, the Reformation, in another sense, was basically a revival um, you know, that just went crazy. It was a revival on steroids. Uh, we don't sometimes understand really that uh, we, we get the wrong connotation when you hear the word reformation. That's why we're calling it transformation. Um, but the basic message is that the gospel changes us. And it, and, it, and it brings us into this new relationship with God through faith in Jesus. And the righteousness which God credits to us, and gives us through faith in Jesus, he then starts to work in us so that we become what we are. When you adopt a child and bring that child into your home, that child gets your name and gets your history and gets your inheritance and gets all these things as an act of grace from you. And then the longer that child lives under your roof, the more they start to take on the family resemblance. And that's what sanctification is. Taking on the family resemblance, being changed. This is basically what God was doing all throughout the, the, the um, New Testament and the Gospels and especially the book of Acts. People are responding to the gospel. They're being changed and they're being put into communities uh, of the gospel where, where people corporately are being changed and the communities are being changed. And so my question to you is, is, is the gospel changing you? Is the gospel transforming you? Are you being reformed? It's, yes, we, we, we come to Christ by faith in him, strictly on his merits, and then he changes us. Are you a new creation? Have you been born again? Are, are you part of the new community of the church? Or, and, and I'm asking you, what is your next step as you follow Jesus? Because we're not supposed to be stagnant and, and just kind of hanging back. We're supposed to be following the one who is leading us closer and closer to the new creation that's coming. We're making progress. There's change. There's growth that takes place in us. Do we want to become more patient, more kind, more loving? Do we want to become more generous, more compassionate, more giving? Do we want to become more courageous, more bold, you know, more disciplined? These are the kinds of changes that can happen as we make it our goal to follow Jesus and to be changed into the family likeness. It's a transformation that takes place. The reformers weren't just reformers, they were the Protestant reformers. This was the Protestant Reformation. And so one more thing to mention is that these people were protesting, right? I mean, isn't that what the, the root of the word Protestant is? It's their protest. They were activists. They not only protested against the, um, what was wrong within the church and trying to renew and reform the church, but they were protesting against what was wrong um, in the community and reforming what was going wrong there. And so I think a fair question to ask is, are we protesting anything? Are we, are we active in seeking to see reforms going on, whether it's in the church or in the community? When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you need to know that is the prayer of a protester who is not content with the status quo. And so if you're praying that prayer, uh, if you mean it, <laughs> That means you're looking around and you're saying, what's my role to play in answer to this prayer? What am I protesting? What am I acting against? It's not just complaining and griping. It's, it's actually 
showing up, speaking up, working for good, working to see blessing come and, and grow as far as the curse is found. It means protesting against things like racism and hate. It means that being, we're being active in things like re, uh, reconciliation. It means protesting against things like poverty and hunger and homelessness and taking an active role in relieving you know, these strains and burdens on people. It means protesting against things like abortion and slavery and pornography and taking an active role in protecting the vulnerable, promoting purity. Um, since we're talking a lot about Luther, one, one more remark from Luther. He says, I will therefore give myself as a sort of Christ to my neighbor, as Christ has given himself to me and will do nothing in this life except what I see will be needful, advantageous and wholesome for my neighbor, since by faith I abound in all good things in Christ. Do you see how that is the attitude and the, the posture of somebody who's protesting what, the problems that are out there and working towards seeing goodness and blessing come to myself, to my neighbor, to my community. Lastly, the really wonderful good news to remember and to take home with you is that one day, on the day, we don't know when this is going to be, but one day there will be an end to all need for any protesting and any acting, any activism. Why? Because there will be a day when we will all be totally transformed, perfectly purified, and everything will be good forever. Paul says it this way. I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the, per the imperishable. Behold, I am telling you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed or transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the transforming power of the gospel, for its work in us, for its work in any who call upon you by faith to forgive our sins and to change us and make us new creations, to, to recognize your rightful place at the center of all things so that you would get glory and that we could, be, we could be good again. Lord, would you show us how to live that kind of life, how to be followers of Jesus how to love what is good and how to resist what is evil. We pray that you would make this church more and more a community of, of blessing and goodness that can come to bear on our community, even on the world. We ask for your, your blessing on every person here, but especially on several of our families this week. We pray for Brandon and Sarah Donahue and for baby Finley. And